Hymn number 17 was asked that we mark that by Brother Eddie, and certainly we're happy to do that. And in a few moments, we'll stand and use that as our hymn of encouragement or hymn of invitation. Let me also echo the sentiments that Brother Roger shared by expressing appreciation that we each have been able to come together safely as we have today. Certainly some of the road conditions are far less than ideal, but yet as we each have been able to do that and to offer worship to the great God of heaven, how wonderful it is he's brought us here safely and that we each have expressed that love in our heart to, to make an effort to, to be here today. I might add one additional announcement to that which was made already. Uh, certainly this evening, as we now realize that our services, we will not meet here this evening. We'll look forward to beginning that series of lessons on the book of Hebrews next Sunday night, if it be the will of God. And so if you have, you might want to reread that opening chapter this sometime this week if you, if you haven't done that. And we'll look forward to starting that series of lessons next Sunday evening. With regard to our lesson this morning, we come to the third installment in that series of lessons that we had begun on the subject of premillennialism. And as we had begun that series of lessons already, we've been challenged to note some of the differences and distinctions that so often are seen in what is portrayed in the world's view of the end of time versus what you and I have come to appreciate from a study of the powerful Word of God. So far, we have perhaps highlighted the great interest and the tremendous curiosity that rests on the mind of many as they give thought to what will happen as time draws to its close. In fact, the world has portrayed many, many answers to that question. And as you and I have already come to appreciate, and as we shall see ever so clearly as the series proceeds onward, so much of what the world portrays is absolutely contradictory to the Word of God. Perhaps already you and I have noted in the first lesson the absolute requirement of the authority vested in the Scriptures by God Himself. Jesus again in Mark eleven twenty seven and following made reference to the fact, is it of heaven or is it from men? And today that still are the only two options relative to authority in matters religious. You and I should seek in this subject to find the authority of the Word of God. In the second lesson, we turned our attention to notice what men have said about the end of time. And let me emphasize again, it's what men have said. Much of that lesson, sadly enough, was different from what God has said. And thus we come today to a more involved consideration of one of the primary elements in what men have said, and it's our desire to contrast it to what God has said. You might have noted in that title that I gave to the lesson today, Premillennialism Part 3, The Purpose of Jesus' First Coming. Perhaps at this point might we well then ask, why? did Jesus make that first visit to this planet? Why did the Son of God come approximately 20 centuries ago and walk upon this planet you and I call Earth? Does the Bible answer that question? Does men, do men have an answer to it? Let's proceed to study that this morning. First of all, giving some thought to the fact that Jesus did come. I thought that that would be a fair way to begin this lesson because notice, if you would, some of the interesting concepts that directly come from the very observation that Jesus did come. The Bible, of course, in resounding tones, affirms and absolutely declares that, yes, indeed, Jesus did come. There can be no question or doubt about that. After all, in Matthew 1.23, we notice, Call him Emmanuel, God with us. Here was God in the flesh, born, of course, in that place you and I would call Bethlehem of Judea. 
we might also affirm, as we give some thought to the opening 14 verses of the book of John, we won't read that in its entirety, but can we not see the bountiful way that the following thought is presented? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with God in the beginning, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That's merely the first three verses of that opening chapter in John. You might note with me that reference was made to the Word, capital W-O-R-D. Who or what is the Word? We only need look further to verse 14 and we find this scripture, this passage. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Son of God. It is then easily seen that that Word, the one that was with God and was God, is the same Word that became flesh and dwelt among us. Of course, that's Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. And over and over again, the Scriptures help us appreciate that indeed, He did come. But that's not all that you and I might say. You might notice also that the Bible overwhelmingly testifies that He came in the flesh. It's not as if He was a ghost or as if he was some other kind of spiritual apparition only, he came in the flesh. In fact, notice a number of the references that I have briefly made note of. In Luke twenty-four thirty-nine, Jesus made note of flesh and bones which ye see me have. In 1 John 1, verses 1 through 3, there's a passage that you and I should give some thought to as we embed in our mind the reality of the fact that Jesus came in the flesh. The inspired apostle made this writing. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it. And bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and which was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, and truly that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. There was a false doctrine prevalent in the days of John, and he, in fact, opposed it head on. That false doctrine made the claim that Jesus didn't literally come in the flesh, but rather it was only an appearance of flesh. And in answer to that, John said, I'm sorry. That's not the way it was. I saw him. I test him. I, in fact, have every realization that, in fact, he was here in the flesh. You'll notice some of the other things that might so quickly be noted. Jesus ate. We find him eating with Matthew, that gentleman also known as Levi in Matthew chapter 9. We find in John 11, 35, he cried tears on the occasion of Lazarus' passing. We find in other instances where he thirsted. He was thirsty. Those things are just a small sampling of the incidences that help us understand. Jesus indeed, though the Son of God He was, He was here upon this earth in fleshly form. Might it be noted as we give thought to those matters that even secular writers testify that there was a gentleman named Jesus. One could consult Josephus. One could look in the writings of Irenaeus both of which clearly affirm there was a man named Jesus. He lived exactly where the Bible said he did. He did many amazing and remarkable things, just as the Bible said he did. And he was even nailed to a cross like the Bible said he was. Even secular writers testify 
Jesus came. All of that helps us see near the close of that list that you and I perhaps would be remiss not to give some thought to the power of those genealogies. If you and I wish to give historical reality to someone, is it one of the first ways we do it is to say, who are his parents? What about his grandparents? What about his great-grandparents? Can we trace his genealogy? And yet the Holy Spirit has seen fit to ensure that you and I are aware of the genealogy of the Son of God. Notice again in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1, some 42 generations of Jesus are listed, tracing him back to Abraham. That spans, you see, approximately 2,000 years of human history, tracing the Lord from Abraham all the way to his birth through the character of Joseph, you see. But notice also that in Luke's account, we have a somewhat different genealogy. There, 77 generations are listed, tracing Jesus from him all the way back to Adam. That one is, of course, remarkable in the sense that Adam, of course, according to 1 Corinthians 15.45, was the first man. There we have directly before us the tracing of the lineage of Jesus from the first man all the way to his birth. Those points tell us Jesus came. And thus, the fact that he came is of no question to us. We know for certain that he did. The question is, why did he come? What was the purpose of that visit? Might we proceed for the remainder of our lesson to use the Bible to help us answer that question? Why did the Lord visit this place? We might well begin by noting what the premillennial view would tell us. The premillennialist would tell us the reason that the Lord came was to establish an earthly kingdom. It was to establish in splendor this kingdom over which he would reign in pomp and in circumstance, and in so doing to bring to fulfillment those so-called earthly prophecies, physical prophecies of the Old Testament. We shall look at some of those prophecies in another lesson, but today our time will be devoted to asking and answering the question, why did the Lord come? Did he come? to establish an earthly empire. Let us see. Might I submit to you that first of all we can affirm the following. One of the reasons that the Lord came to this planet was to do the will of the Father. Let us give some consideration to what that means. First of all, in John 6 verse 38, we there notice that Jesus from his own lips made this statement, I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. Jesus thus stated that his objective, his purpose, his mission was to do that which was the will of God. In John 4 verse 34 on that occasion when he had a discussion in the confines of that woman at, the, at Jacob's well in Samaria, on that occasion, Jesus said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. The Lord had a mission, and it was to do and to complete that which was his objective based on the will of God. In John chapter 5, we also notice yet other passages that touch this subject. In John 5 verse 30, again, the Lord said that his purpose was to do the will of the Heavenly Father. Perhaps finally, we might notice the Lord's utterance of that same thought in Matthew the 26th chapter. There do we not well remember in the interesting scenes of Gethsemane when on that occasion Jesus prayed so earnestly that this cup might pass from me. 
But did he not close that by saying, Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. It was the desire completely of Jesus to accomplish and to do the will of his heavenly Father. And hence, at this point, one might now ask, what was the Father's will? Was it the Father's will that he set up an earthly kingdom on that occasion? Was it the desire and the objective of God for his Son to come on that occasion and establish an earthly empire? Perhaps like the one that David had reigned over a thousand years earlier. Perhaps like the one that the Roman Empire was in enjoying in such great power. In John 3 verse 16, Jesus in that golden text of the Bible made this statement. As he spoke to Nicodemus, in that interesting and rather overwhelming text, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That seems to directly affirm that God's will in sending his Son had not to do with the physical characteristics of an empire upon earth. It had to do with the touching of the power of offering a cleansing capability to their sins. That verse seems to overwhelmingly affirm it had a spiritual connotation and a spiritual thrust, not a physical one. If you and I needed more consideration to that point, perhaps we should visit Galatians 1 verse 4. In the opening stanza of the book of Galatians, we there have there a statement about the purpose of Christ's coming, and it's put in language like this. We there read that Jesus released us from our sins, and in so doing, notice, it was related to the will of God in matters as surely stated as is the following. In Galatians 1, verse number 4, we read the following passage. Speaking of Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil world, and note carefully with me the way the verse closes, according to the will of God and our Father. The will of God is there directly affirmed to relate to releasing us from the dangers according to our sins, delivering us from this present evil world. Did you notice that God's will, far from setting up a kingdom on this earth, was to deliver us from this earth and the evils that surround it by virtue of the sin that's present? May we submit already in our lesson this morning, there seems to be a gigantic problem with the premillennial perspective that Christ came to establish an earthly kingdom. Our first consideration has said not so. But let us look at yet another. Why did the Lord come to this earth? Firstly, to do the Father's will. But secondly, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. As we build a case by considering some of the following passages, we will quickly notice that the devil, of course, is the nemesis of the human family. He is our arch enemy. In Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, stretching back practically to the dawn of time, we find that it was none other than he in the form of a serpent who in fact tempted Mother Eve. And in so doing, she and her husband Adam partook of that forbidden fruit, and therein sin entered the world. Satan took the command of God and altered it. He in fact changed it completely, he lied. He, in fact, is the deceiver of the whole world, Revelation 12, verse 9. In fairness to that point, might we add to it in language in those other passages? 
In the opening two chapters of the book of Job, who was it that caused such problems to come upon that pious and godly man that you and I recognize as Job, the great patriarch of us? God's not the one that brought those difficulties to him. Who, in fact, brought the issues in which he lost his children? Who was it that brought upon him the things where his possessions were taken from him? Who was it that brought the boils upon him? It was Satan. It was Satan that caused those problems to this godly man. Later, do we not read passages such as these as well? In John 8 verse 44, Jesus, the very Son of God, in reference to the devil said, He's a murderer from the beginning. And in fact, he's a liar for all who follow him are of their father, the devil who in fact has been a liar from the beginning. It is in light of all of those passages that perhaps Peter sums them up in rather vivid language when he says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that you and I are to be sober and be vigilant. For our adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. As we've often noted, it is the interest of the devil, of course, to bring you and me to separation from God. He does not want us to maintain a close fellowship with him, for he wants us to be lost. So much so that his destiny is so clearly portrayed to you and to me. Jesus affirmed in Matthew twenty-five forty-one that there is a place prepared for the devil and his angels. This place is prepared, and in John's vision in the Revelation, in Revelation chapters 19 and 20, we read about this place described as a lake burning with fire and brimstone. And what did John see? As chapter 19 closed, and when one arrives at chapter 10, or verse 10 in chapter 20, we find that devil, that beast, is cast into that lake burning with fire and brimstone. Of no question that that is the devil, and therein we find that dragon cast therein. Can we not so eloquently and so powerfully see that the destiny of him is made certain? But now comes the vital point of that for you and for me. For you see, not only is the devil cast into that place, all of those who are his followers are cast into the same place. And that would include every one of us, were it not for the coming of Jesus Christ. Were it not for the opportunity of redemption, the power of sanctification through his blood, and obedience to the gospel commandments that he makes available to you and to me. For isn't it true that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God? Romans 3.23 and isn't it true that there is no man that sinneth not? 1 Kings 8.46 To those points, we might thus rather hastily come to the lesson text that Brother Jonathan read in our hearing earlier this morning. I would turn your attention to the closing part of 1 John 3 verse 8. Perhaps no text in all the Word of God so dramatically states why Jesus came than this one. For this purpose... The Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. In terms of our English understanding of that verse, what does it say? For this purpose. That's a prepositional phrase that modifies a later aspect of that same sentence and it tells us why he came. For what purpose? To destroy the works of the devil. May I submit to you, the Lord didn't come to establish an earthly kingdom as the premillennialists claim. The inspired writer John said he came to destroy the works of the devil and that was not to be accomplished by reigning over a physical empire. 
rather in that destruction, it was to free you and me from the shackles of sin and to make available to us a thoroughfare to enjoy heaven forevermore and to avoid that lake burning with fire and brimstone. That's the reason our Savior came. You'll notice, though, that we have yet a third reason, and all of these have some degree to which they work together. On the first occasion, we notice he came to do the Father's will. Secondly, he came to destroy the works of the devil. Thirdly, why else did the Savior come to this planet? You'll notice, thirdly, he came to condemn sin in the flesh. As you and I consider the way that sin is presented to us, a moment ago we affirm that there's no man that sinneth not. But what is it that is a direct consequence of that sin? Can we not recall in Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, though written from the pen of an ancient prophet, that prophet made such a dramatic statement when he wrote this. He said, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. Of note there is the reference to both sin and iniquity, and that which it causes is separation from God, alienation from closeness and nearness to Him. That's what sin causes, and hence, any time that you or I participate in such and do not receive forgiveness from it, we have separated ourselves from God. We're alienated from Him. Notice then the situation in which that puts you and in which that puts me. No wonder, in fairness to that, we can appreciate the text of Romans 8, verse number 3. Again, a reason as to why our Savior came. Notice how the inspired Apostle Paul penned that statement in Romans 8, verse number 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. We have there thus a third description as to why Jesus left heaven and came to this earth. Again, Paul wrote, what the law could not do. That's the law of Moses. The law of Moses was incapable. It was ineffective for making a person sanctified, justified, and right before God in all the fullness of sin's forgiveness. Because remember, the Hebrew writer tells us the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. Hebrews 10 verse 4. Thus, as Paul joins that chorus, he says, God, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. In the person of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, we find that one who did live sinlessly beneath the law of Moses. He never once violated it, never once did he transgress it, but throughout the concourse of his life, the Hebrew writer was able to make this statement in Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. The Lord thus by living fully and completely throughout these days upon this earth, but sinlessly he condemned sin in the flesh and as such could himself serve as the one sacrifice for all of human sin. He condemned it. He put it to death. That's not to say that you and I now do not sin, of course. That's to say, though, that now we have a way that sin can be forgiven 
that God will never hold it against us as long as we utilize the blood of Christ to cleanse it. Christ condemned sin in the flesh. In so doing, you'll notice some of the other comments that I ask you to note. In 1 Peter 2.22, no guile was found in his mouth. Many things, of course, Jesus stated and taught as he spoke and taught upon earth, but yet never once was there any guile found in his mouth. Nothing improper, no word that should never have been spoken. You see, he never sinned in any way. As you notice, one of the closing thoughts that I stated about that point, you might consider with me in that regard that Jesus, by virtue of that sinless life, in his condemnation of sin, was the perfect and only sacrifice. And as such, when you and I avail ourselves of the efficacy of that sacrifice, we are able to stand rightly and justly in fulfillment of God's will, that first point that we had noted earlier. And notice by that same virtue and thrust, Jesus destroyed the works of the devil. Sin is the devil's main club. It's that that he has been able to bang over the heads of men and women since practically the dawn of time. Jesus took the strength out of that club. We don't have to, in fact, enter hell because of it. Now there's forgiveness. Now there is opportunity to be saved from sin. That loveliness, as we see in the reason for Christ's coming, is far from physical. It has to do everything with spiritual matters. But perhaps in the fourth place, again, as I've stated, these seem to have an interesting relationship one to the other. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Jesus came to die. Jesus came to die. That seems in some ways rather foreign to you and to me, doesn't it? When you and I are at the hospital and we're there to rejoice over the birth of a little baby, perhaps to our family or a dear friend or perhaps a neighbor, it's a time of celebration. And the furthest thing we think about then is the death of that child. We look forward to the potential and promise of a lifetime of living all that that child is able to accomplish, the good things he or she will be able to do. Again, I'd submit the furthest thing most of the time from our mind is the death of that child. And yet I'd submit to you that when Jesus was born, he was born to die. Notice with me some passages that bring that point home to us. In the Hebrew letter, in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, we find this statement made about the coming of Jesus. In such jubilation, the Hebrew writer said, But we see Jesus. The word bud indicates this is a contrast. In the verses that followed, he had already made an argument and a point. That is beside our lesson time for this morning. But he said, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, crowned with glory and honor for the suffering of death. Did you note the prepositional phrase? For the suffering of death. That's why he came. And notice it ends by saying that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Jesus was born to die. He died on that cross taking my place and yours. He was born to die. He came to this planet. He came to this earth to taste of death for every man. You'll notice five verses later in verse 14 of that same chapter, speaking again of Jesus, he took upon him the form of flesh and blood so that he could be made like one of his brethren, like you and like me, flesh and bones and blood. But you'll notice as that verse closes, 
that in so doing he destroyed him that had the power of death, that is the devil. We've almost come full circle. We noticed in 1 John 3, 8, he came for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And now the Hebrew writer in verse 14 of chapter 2 says, he came to destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. Why did Jesus come? We haven't seen a single verse that even hinted that he came to establish a physical empire. To reign in Jerusalem for a thousand years, he didn't come for that reason. He came spiritually for the purposes of making it possible for you and for me to be saved. And he did that by virtue of his death. He did it by doing the Father's will. He did it by destroying the works of the devil. And he did it, as we noted most recently, by the agency of point number three, to condemn sin in the flesh. Perhaps it would be fair to summarize some of those thoughts in words like this. Premillennialism so strongly affirms that the primary reason and thrust that Jesus came was to establish a physical empire, to reign in regal royal splendor from Jerusalem. My friend, Jesus did not come for that purpose. Premillennialism is false. It is wrong on that point. Jesus, as we've noted today, came to do the Father's will. And that will was not relation to earth per se in terms of establishing a kingdom it was to deliver us from the evilness of this earth Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil 1 John 3 verse 8 he came to condemn sin in the flesh Romans 8 verse 3 and he came to die when he marched Calvary carrying the load of that cross when he moved in that direction he went on that occasion because that's what he was born to do he came here because you might remember, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Peter drew his sword and was prepared physically to defend his master and savior, and he cut off the right ear of Malchus, Jesus said, put up your sword. I did not come for that purpose. He made note the Father's will would lead him to the cross. It was God's will, you see, that he die at Golgotha. It was God's will that he, in fact, inaugurate a spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. And it was God's will that he reign as king and as supreme over that spiritual kingdom, not a physical one. The kingdoms of this earth have come and they have gone, haven't they? The ancient days of the Grecian Empire, the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, they've all come and they have all gone. Jesus did not come to reestablish one of them. He came to establish an empire that would reign supreme over all of them, as we're going to see shortly in our next lesson. But for this morning, might we take this opportunity to draw this lesson to its conclusion and to affirm yet in our mind Jesus did not come, as the premillennialists claim, to establish a physical kingdom. He came, as we have seen, in these spiritual ways to deal with the problem of sin. And he did that in his death by destroying the works of the devil. And he did so by doing completely the will of God in that regard. And as he condemned sin in the flesh, you and I have the opportunity to tie on to salvation offered by him. And that brings us to the gospel plan of salvation this morning. How does one obtain association to that death, to that blood that he shed? It begins by hearing the word of the Lord. To appreciate the straightforward, powerful commands that God has given through the nature of his Son, 
that involves not only hearing but believing Jesus to be the Son of God. Romans 10, verses 10 through 13. We notice it involves furthermore a repentance of the sins in our life. Acts 2, verse 38. In addition to that repentance, we notice the requirement of our confession, an audible statement in the hearing of others, that you and I believe Jesus to be the only begotten Son of God, per the pattern of Acts eight thirty seven, and then to be baptized for the remission of sins. If today there might be one or more in the audience who would be in the need of life for which that should be done for you today, don't allow Satan to cause you to stand there in your place as we sing this song in a moment. Take those steps up this aisle. You will rejoice in a few moments as you enter into your Savior's body. And what a wonderful and marvelous day for you it will be. If you have become a Christian at some former time in life, but you perhaps have been dissuaded by some premillennial ideas, maybe you have begun to think that the kingdom was supposed to be physical. In light of the passages that we've studied today, that is not the case. Maybe you have even done things, said things that you need public repentance for because others know what you've done. If we could help you today in that regard, we'd be happy to pray with you, for you, and God has promised to forgive in the words of 1 John 1, verses 8 through 10. If today we could be of any assistance to you, won't you let that be known while together we stand while we sing.